Uh, well, I have a, uh, I have a particular stack of, of books in my room, and uh, they're not necessarily spiritual books or books that are really going to help you grow uh, to follow Jesus much. Uh, they're just what I call good old man books, uh, just books I think every man should be reading from time to time. Sometimes I, I, I read them, I, I read a portion from them, at least one of them, pretty much uh, every other day or so, and sometimes I read them just to get a good laugh because some of them are, are fairly entertaining. Uh, one of them is subtitled, uh, A Relentless Onslaught of the Toughest War. Warlords, Vikings, samurai, pirates, gunfighters, and military commanders to ever live. And uh, part of the description reads like this. The individuals populating these pages are the most savagely awesome historical figures. To ever strap on a pair of chainmail gauntlets and run screaming into battle, it's a gallery of butt-stomping rogues and their bone-breaking exploits. Now, that's my kind of history book. If I was, if I was a history teacher, I might see if I could get approval to teach from that. Uh, along with that book is another one entitled The Ultimate Survival Guide. Uh, and then paired with that one is another one, uh, and I feel like people have, have, have at least heard of this one, The Complete Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Um, both of these books are basically just chapter after chapter of learning how to survive life and death situations. Uh, so things like an avalanche or a bear fight, uh, I guess not a bear fight, a bear attack, uh, a knife fight, uh, zombie apocalypse, uh, you know, things that are very realistic and that may happen, you know, every other day. And the question, the question for every chapter and every scenario is essentially, how do you survive? Uh, what, what are the things that you would need to know, the things that you would need to do, the things that you would need to have when your life and, and your fate really hangs in the balance? And I would submit to you that the entire letter of Hebrews, and particularly chapter 11, is written by a pastor who is absolutely convinced that the lives of his readers hang in the balance. And that their fate actually hangs on their faith. Their lives and their fate hang on their faith. I think it's really a letter written to people who do feel that they are experiencing a worst case scenario kind of situation. Uh, their identification with Jesus Christ has made them the object of the world's hostility. Uh, this church is experiencing persecution in a variety of forms. It has made life both difficult and dangerous. And as a result, they are discouraged in their faith. They are tired in their faith. They're wearied in their faith. They're struggling with their faith. Uh, some of them are even questioning the worth and the value of their faith. And there is some concern that some might even abandon their faith. And so this letter, and particularly this chapter, chapter 11, was written under the conviction that their fate hangs on their faith. It is the one thing, their faith is the one thing above all other things that they absolutely have to have if they are going to survive. That if they're going to inherit the promises of God, if they're going to receive his great salvation, as it says in chapter 2, if they're going to make it all the way to the end, ultimate survival depends on the existence and the exercise of their faith. Now, the, the writer to Hebrews, he's, he's not a fortune teller, okay? He doesn't have a crystal ball. He can't, he can't peer into the future and see if their situation circumstantially speaking, is going to get any better or if their situation is going to get worse. He doesn't know that. He can't provide them with that kind of information in order to encourage them or comfort them. So instead, what he does tell them is that it's not the outcome of our circumstances that matters most. It's not the outcome that matters most. But what matters most is our faith in the midst of any circumstance, regardless of the outcome. Let me, let me just say that again. That it's not the outcome of our circumstances that matters the most. But rather, it's our faith in the midst of any circumstance, regardless of the outcome, that matters most. And I believe it's actually that, that truth that is the particular lesson as we come to the end of chapter 11 
And we look at verses 32 through 40 this morning. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And Father, I pray this morning that you would open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, my particular prayer this morning is that through, through your word, by your spirit, that you would, you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that truly we would be a people who, who were not ultimately depending upon the knowledge of a particular outcome to our circumstances in order, to, in order to be hopeful, in order to be encouraged, but rather, Lord, you would grant us, Lord, a, a kind of vision of who you are and what you have done and what you have ultimately promised, so that in the midst of any circumstance, Lord, our faith in you would remain solid Lord, that we would indeed, as we're going to study and see this morning, that our faith would be bold and that our faith would endure. Lord, for our own good, for our own survival, for, Lord, the reception of of the blessings that you have promised us, and, Lord, for your glory and, Lord, your honor, that we would have a faith that is bold, a faith that is enduring. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, verse 32 begins with the question... And what more shall I say? Which means it might be good to answer the question, well, what has he already said? Uh, Chapter 10 ends uh, recounting past days where these Hebrew disciples did gladly suffer for the name of Jesus. Uh, they, They were willing at one point to endure the world's hostility because they believed that in the gospel they had something better in Christ than anything the world could ever take away from them. Verse 34, 10, 1034. But, but somewhere along the way, when their circumstances did not improve, when they did not change, when persecution did not relent, uh, they grew weary, they grew tired, they grew fatigued, they grew discouraged, they, they doubted. Their faith was tested when they experienced the tension of what felt like a contradiction between God's promises of blessing in the gospel and the things that they were actually experiencing in in real life. And because because the writer of Hebrews knows that their ultimate survival does depend upon their faith, chapter 10 ends with this rally call of faith in verse 39 where he says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. And so then chapter 11 comes, and chapter 11 follows right on the the heels of that rally call, and and chapter 11 provides them and provides us with example after example after example of the lives of God's people who lived with that kind of faith that we're being called to in chapter 10, verse 39. And so as chapter 11 moves toward a close in verse 32, the question is asked, okay, after all these examples, after all these encouragements, what more shall I say? What more shall I say? Well, apparently there is a lot more that he would like to say, things that time apparently won't permit him to say in detail, 
And so what follows then in verses 32 to 38 are just these real quick name drops, these real quick bullet points that that just continue to illustrate the kind of faith that we're being called to. But I think perhaps what is most noteworthy in these verses is actually the contrast of examples that are given. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we are given examples of faith where sometimes, sometimes when we walk by faith, the circumstances, they get better. Like things actually do improve. Things, things turn in a way where the outcome is actually is, is triumphant. I mean, there's, there's this incredible victory and, and deliverance and the miraculous happens. Sometimes when we walk by faith, that, that, that's what we experience. But then there are other times when we walk by faith and the circumstances don't actually get any better. In fact, they, they, they turn in a way where they get even worse. And the outcome is, is, is even tragic. There's, there's not the same kind of victory. There's not the same kind of deliverance that is experienced. And so, though faith be the common bond in all of these examples, there is the, the very obvious juxtaposition of contrasting circumstances and particularly contrasting outcomes that some through faith escape the edge of the sword. Verse 34. While others, by that very same faith, were killed with the sword. Verse 37. And then likewise, some, through faith, received back their dead by resurrection. Verse 35a. But then immediately, very next statement, right on the heels of that. Verse 35b. Others, through that same faith, actually died a martyr's death. So that they might, as it says, rise again to a better life. A future life. And so what we have here is is not only circumstances with contrasting outcomes, but we actually have contrasting definitions of deliverance, don't we? (laughs) We have have contrasting definitions of victory, contrasting definitions of, of, of deliverance, some deliverance being temporal, while some deliverance being eternal. So that the kind of faith that's being spoken of here and that we're being called to, it's, it's not just a, sort of a, a, a generic, you know, let's happy-go-lucky, everybody's gonna, everything's going to turn out just fine in the end, sort of this, this generic bubblegum kind of faith. But it is, it is, it is gospel faith. Okay? It's, it's deep, abiding, gospel faith. And the reason that I say it is gospel faith is because gospel faith is faith that is convinced that God is able to move with power and deliver us in this life, isn't he? Yes, he is. He is able. Faith, gospel faith is convinced that God is able to move with power and deliver us in this life. But gospel faith is also convinced that if he does not... It is a faith that is convinced that God has already moved with power in Christ to deliver us in the next life. That's gospel faith. I believe that's the kind of faith that we're being called to here at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember this author, he's not a fortune teller. Okay, he doesn't have a crystal ball. He doesn't know if their circumstances, situationally speaking, are going to get any better or if they're going to get any worse. Can I provide them with that information? Can't peer into the future and tell you, hang in there, stick tight, everything's going to get better. He cannot tell them that. Can't do that. But it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, what is most important is not the outcome of their circumstances, but rather faith in the midst of any circumstance, regardless of the outcome, a gospel faith. A gospel faith that is convinced God is able, he is able to move with power and deliver you in this life, if he so chooses. He is able. And gospel faith is also convinced that if he does not do that, if he does not provide that kind of deliverance, that kind of victory, that God has already moved with power in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ to deliver you in the next life. 
That's gospel faith. Which, according to verse 35b, is a faith that is convinced that that life, that future life, is the better life. The truer life, the greater life, the eternal life. And brothers and sisters, hear this because this is the rest of my sermon. So if you miss this statement, you're going to miss everything I'm about to say. It is, it, is, it is that kind of gospel faith that is convinced of those things. That kind of gospel faith that frees us to be both bold for Christ and to endure for Christ. Okay, when you believe that gospel faith, when you are convinced that God is able to move with power and deliver you in this life, it will make you bold. <laughs> And when you believe that if he does not deliver you in those kinds of ways in this life, temporarily, situationally, circumstantially speaking, but he has already moved with power in Christ to deliver you in the next life, it will free you to endure for Christ. This kind of gospel faith frees us to be both bold for Christ and to endure for Christ. So let's talk about being bold for Christ. There are times when through faith, God will move with power to deliver us in this life in ways that are just awesome. And that that is essentially what we see in the example and the illustrations that are given in verses 32 through 35a. And And I do believe that they are here to make our faith bold for Christ. He, he starts by name-dropping six guys, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then he name-drops a, a whole group of guys, the prophets, who, verse 33, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and I do kind of feel like the author in verse 32 where he says time you know, doesn't really allow me to speak of all of these things in great detail. Time doesn't allow us to elaborate on every story here either. But, but let's try just a little bit. Let's try just a little bit because I believe you will be inspired with a bold faith for Christ. First of all, Gideon. Gideon's mentioned. Gideon's the first name that's dropped here. Judges chapter 7. When the Midianites for years had oppressed Israel and had brought them low, as it says, and the people of God cried out to God for deliverance, here in Gideon was a bold faith that believed that God is able to deliver. And it is a bold faith that actually expressed itself in bold obedience to God. When at God's instruction, Gideon reduced his army of 32,000 men down to a band of 300 and was given a military strategy by God that involved torches, clay pots, and trumpets. Not necessarily a military strategy that you're going to find in any military training manual or handbook, but with faith that believed God was able to deliver them, he boldly obeyed the word of God and the Midianites were thrown into confusion and disarray and the end result was victory and deliverance. Next person on the list, next name drop is Barak, Israel's military commander against Sisera and his Canaanite army who we are told had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And in a critical moment of decision, he acted in faith, believing that God said, go, now's the time to go. And he responded in faith and he says, okay, I'm going to go. And he advanced against a vastly superior military machine. And the end result was victory and deliverance. Samson. Somewhat surprising to see his name on here. Hardly a, a paragon of Christian virtue. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was rash. He was independent. Had a particular weakness for foreign women. Uh, and yet, and yet, it becomes obvious that Samson lived conscious. He lived aware of the empowering presence of the Spirit of God. In fact, Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says about Samson that he was a man deeply conscious of the invisible God. And I think nowhere was that more notable than at the end of Samson's life. In fact, I think this statement in verse 34 about being made strong out of weakness is most likely a reference to Samson. 
when he was betrayed by Delilah and he had his head shaved and his eyes were gouged out by the Philistines and he had lost his strength and he was chained to two pillars in the temple of Dagon and the Philistines were mocking Samson, mocking his God while praising Dagon, their idol God. And Samson, in faith, cries out to Yahweh, kind of one last gasp for Yahweh, the one true God, for for strength to come and to deliver and to provide the strength that he needed and God answers in that moment and, and Samson is able to pull down the pillars and in pulling down the pillars he pulled down the entire temple of Dagon in judgment against 3,000 Philistines and against their false god Dagon. It's an awesome story. Awesome story. We have, we have Jephthah. I think he's another guy who probably can be criticized for his rashness but what's being commemorated here is really a bold faith. You know the story of of Jephthah who, in his response to the Ammonites, he expresses this deep conviction that God God had delivered the the Israelites, God had delivered the people of God out of the hands of the Egyptians, and therefore God would most certainly deliver them out of the hands of the Ammonites. There was this, 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 this unshakable confidence in Yahweh's ability to act, in Yahweh's ability to move on their behalf, on their behalf, and it was upon that confidence in Yahweh that he acted and the end result was victory and deliverance. We have David, not surprising he is on the list. He's remembered as Israel's greatest king, described as a man after God's own heart and what he's particularly being remembered for here is his bold faith. Um, Even as a young man, uh, you know, even even, even as, a, as, as just a shepherd, as a boy, when the armies of Israel are too afraid to confront Goliath and the Philistine army outsteps David with this bold faith in Yahweh, this bold faith in Israel's God. And, and, and in that moment, David delivers one of the most classic lines in the entire Bible. He says, he says to Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I love that. Now, that's, that's, that's better than Mel Gibson's freedom speech in Braveheart, like right before the Battle of Sterling. I mean, and, and we know how this story ends. It ends with Goliath's decapitated head, which is awesome. You can put that in my book of relentless onslaughts of the world's toughest warriors and, and samurai and pirates because that's where that story belongs. And of course, David, David had his weaknesses. He did, we know this. He, he sinned in some very significant ways in his life. But I would submit to you, even then, David had a bold faith. He had a bold faith that expressed itself in deep humility. A bold faith that expressed itself in deep repentance toward God. And the end result of David's life was forgiveness and victory and deliverance. Some of Israel's most prosperous years were under King David. And then Samuel is mentioned also not surprising to find him in this list, his bold faith really expressed itself in an entire life of, of trust and obedience toward the Lord, an entire life of integrity, an entire life of devotion to God, a life of, of, of consistent reverence for God. I think one notable example perhaps is in 1 Samuel chapter 7 at the battle of Mizpah where Samuel intercedes and he prays and he pours out his heart to God on behalf of Israel and God answers him and the end result again is victory and deliverance. And then the writer of Hebrews, he mentions as an entire group in verse 32, the prophets. And obviously that's meant to call to mind Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all, all, of, all of these guys. And, 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 we, and when we read some of these triumphs of faith in, in verses 33 through 34, it's really some of these guys, these heroes of faith that, that come to mind and, and some of the descriptions that, that are given in the following verses there that, that through faith, verse 33, they, they stop the mouths of lions. Now, Samson and David both had their run-ins with lions, but I think it's pretty obvious that, that Daniel is the one that, that really comes to mind here, who, in bold faith, chose to defy the king rather than deny his God, even under the threat of execution. Daniel, with bold faith, remained faithful to God, and God shut the mouths of lions. Victory and deliverance. 
told in verse 34 that through faith the power of fire was quenched. Most likely, again, what's in the author's mind are probably Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, like Daniel, because of their bold faith, were unwavering in their determination to serve God only and to remain faithful to God only. And so, and so even un- under the threat of, of death, they chose to defy the king rather than deny their God. And just like David did to Goliath, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego deliver this classic line, before being thrown into the fiery furnace, they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from burning in the fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the images that you have set up. End result, miraculous deliverance. Awesome story. Miraculous deliverance. Verse 35, we're we're told of women who, through faith, receive back their dead by resurrection. I think the most likely reference here is to Elijah and Elisha, both of whom interceded in bold faith on behalf of, of women whose boys had died. And again, the end result was miraculous deliverance. Bold faith expressing itself in these bold petitions, these bold prayers, these bold requests, and God restores their lives. All of these examples... In illustrations in verses 32 through 35, I think, I think they're just meant to evoke the imagination, are they not? Just to, just, just to call, just to recall the stories. So, I mean, so much, so much of, the, of the stories that we knew and that we heard about as kids growing up, and it just, it just evokes the imagination. And, and really so much more could be said about each one, but for time's sake, the author, he doesn't elaborate. It just kind of comes at us like an avalanche, you know, wave after wave, just, just one quick example, one right after the other, right on top of each other, where bold faith is meant to inspire bold faith, bold faith that expresses itself in these bold choices, these, these bold acts of obedience, this bold faithfulness, this, this, these bold prayers, these, this, this bold, bold choices, bold requests, bold repentance, all expressions of a bold faith that is convinced that God is able to move with power and to deliver us in this life to bring about the miraculous, to bring about victory. And we see example after example where he does exactly that. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Where is God calling you to a bold faith? Is, it, is, is there a bold choice that needs to be made? You know, is there, is there a bold step of obedience that you need to take that says, okay, no matter the outcome, no matter the way this thing pans out circumstantially, okay, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what God's calling. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's good. I'm going to do what I believe God wants me to do. And in bold faith, I'm going to obey. I'm going to respond. I'm going to make that choice. Is there a bold faith in that way God's calling you to? Is there, is there, is there a bold prayerfulness that God's calling you to out of, out of a, an expression of, of bold faith would just be these bold petitions, these bold requests, these bold prayers where you are petitioning him to move with power and to do something in a particular situation. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's bold repentance that God is calling you to. Where, where as an expression of bold faith, you say, all right, Lord, I'm done. En- enough, enough of this sin. It's time to start following you radically and wholeheartedly in this area of my life. Bold repentance as an expression of, of bold faith. You know, where, where is God calling you as an individual disciple of Jesus Christ to a bold faith? And, and really each one of us has to answer that for ourselves where, 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 where we, we look at our lives, we look at the things going on in our life and we say to ourselves, okay, Lord, bold faith in my life looks like, like this. And we, and we fill in the blank. What, what about as a church? What about as a church? What kind of bold faith is God calling you to, calling you to collectively, together, as a body, as a family, as a church family? 
as you, as you minister to your community in this area? What, a, what about a bold faith that expresses itself in bold outreach, bold evangelism, you know, bold compassion, bold service to the community, bold, bold love to those around you, where, where in, in, in really in bold faith, you say, all right, I'm, we're going to get out of our bubble, we're going to get out of our shell, we're going to get out of our comfort zone, and we're going to get into the mess of people's lives who don't know Jesus, and, 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 and we're going we're gonna to go get it. I mean, you, you got any neighbors? Got any, got any co-workers? Got any people that you regularly see or relate to in this community? That you think, okay, in the natural, you think, man, they are so far from God, it would take a miracle to see them come to Christ. Like, that would be, that would be the story of the year to see this particular neighbor, this particular people that I interact with, this, this person that, that I know or that I work with. Is God calling you to a bold faith for that? A bold faith for revival right here in this community. Where are we? Clarksburg? Urbana? Somewhere? Germantown? I get confused. There's too many little suburbs in Maryland. But a, a bold faith that just begins to express itself in this bold witness, you know, bold friendship, bold kindness, you know, bold interaction with people, just bold love, where you're just loving on them, you're just, you're just meeting them where they are, you're just bringing them into your life, you're, you're going into the mess of their life, and you're just, okay, out of bold faith, I'm just going to start loving these people around me. They might think I'm obnoxious, they might think I'm crazy, but there, there's a bold faith that believes God is able through the power of the gospel, to bring deliverance and victory and do the miraculous here in this community, in these people's lives who don't yet know Jesus. And as a church, he's calling us to a bold faith. Listen, take, take note of the triumphs of a bold faith that are given to us in this passage. They, they are amazing. They really are. God still moves like that. It's the same God we serve today. The same God who saved us through his son, Jesus. Same God who does the exact same kinds of things today. And so where is God calling you to a bold faith? Expressing itself in bold acts of faith. And yet, what we also see in this passage is that gospel faith doesn't just set us free to be bold for Christ. It sets us free to endure for Christ. Verses 35b through verse 38. Uh, the week that I was originally preparing the sermon uh, to preach in Charlotte, I was back in the fall, and I was actually, it, that week, I remember I was watching Game 6 of the World Series. Uh, game 6 was sort of a blowout, and so I started flipping through channels on the TV. Uh, when I got to ESPN2, and I noticed that they were airing an episode of the NFL's Greatest Games. Um, and if you've never seen that show, uh, basically it's, it's, not, it's a 90-minute documentary of one of the NFL's greatest games, sort of self-explanatory. Uh, and it just so happened that this particular episode featured Super Bowl 38 uh, between the New England Patriots, the very evil New England Patriots, and my Carolina Panthers. Now, anybody who knows me, I, I listen... I understand this really isn't going to resonate up here in, in Redskins territory or Ravens territory, wherever we are, but for the sake of myself, I'm going to go with this illustration because anybody who knows me knows I'm, I'm a diehard Carolina Panthers fan. Like, I love football. I love the NFL. Love the Carolina Panthers. Um, during football season, <laughs> Jeannie knows. Like, I'm nervous waking up Sunday morning. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm going to church thinking, oh, I've got to cast this particular care on you because my hands are sweaty and I'm totally distracted by the Carolina Panthers. So, so, so I, I always knew that this was one of the NFL's greatest games. I was just happy to see ESPN finally recognize that this was one of the NFL's greatest games. And so as, so as I flipped the channel and I realized what was airing, I was instantly hooked, um, instantly sucked in. And so the, the show begins sort of documenting some of the drama of how each team got to the Super Bowl. Uh, then it gets into the drama of, of telling the story of the actual game. And they've got all this commentary interspersed from players and coaches. And then, of course, they got all the highlights and, and, the, and the footage. And so it starts telling the story of, of the pregame fight that almost broke out between the two teams, which I did not know about. Uh, then the slugfest of, of the first half. And then the Panthers went into halftime down 14 to 10. 
10. And then by the start of the fourth quarter, they were down 21 to 10. But hey, this was the season of the Cardiac Cats. Okay, eight out of their 11 wins were come from behind fourth quarter or overtime victories. And so this is the Cardiac Cats. The Cardiac Cats are going to make a comeback. There's a reason this is one of the NFL's greatest games. And so the next thing you know, Deshaun Foster breaks off a 30-yard touchdown run. Panthers get the ball back again. Jake DeLome uncorks an 85-yard touchdown bomb to Musin Muhammad. Still the longest touchdown pass play in Super Bowl history, mind you. And suddenly, suddenly the Panthers are winning 22-21 to midway through the fourth quarter. Then the Patriots get the ball back. They score a touchdown, two-point conversion. They're up 29-22. to We get the ball back with just minutes left in the game. We go down. We score a touchdown. It's 29-29. to And I'm watching this. Okay, I'm watching this game. And I've seen it a dozen times already. Okay, and, 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 I, and, and, and I'm not making this up. Okay, no lie, no joke, not exaggerating. This tells you how emotionally inv- invested I was into this. I start thinking to myself, we're going to win this game. <laughs> like, like, like I, 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 th- I think we're going to win this game. And so I'm on the edge of my couch like, come on, guys, come on. Come on, we got this. And then, of course, John Casey kicks the ball out of bounds on the ensuing kickoff. Patriots get the ball on the 40. Five seconds left on the clock. They kick the game-winning field goal. End of story. Panthers lose by three. But when it was over, I looked at Jeannie, who was sitting next to me and not as emotionally invested into this as I was, and I said to her, man, man, I was really hoping that was going to end different this time. No, 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 no different, no, no, no victory, you know, no, no triumph, no, no deliverance from the evil New England Patriots. But man, man, I was, I was really hoping this was going to end different this time. And I think the writer to the Hebrews is well aware that sometimes, okay, no matter how bold your faith is, sometimes you come to the end of things, you come to the end of a particular season, you come to the end of a particular situation, the end of a particular circumstance, and all, all you can say is, man, I was really hoping that was going to end different this time. It doesn't end different. It, 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 sometimes things end not the way we want them to. They end contrary to our prayers. They end contrary to, to our hopes. They end contrary to our desires. And, 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 and all we can say is, man, I was, I was really hoping that was going to end different this time. And that, that's why what matters isn't only a faith that is bold, but also a faith that endures. Because things don't always end in triumph. In fact, they might actually end in tragedy. Again, some, through faith, escaped the edge of the sword, verse 34, while others, by that same faith, were killed with the sword, verse 37. Some, through faith, received back their dead by resurrection. And yet, while others, very next statement, through faith, they die die a martyr's death so that they might rise again to a better life, a different kind of resurrection. See, again, the the, the call here, brothers and sisters, is to gospel faith. And gospel faith is bold, and gospel faith endures because gospel faith is convinced that God is able to move with power, and he is able to deliver us in this life. Yes, he is. But if he does not, Gospel faith is convinced that God has already moved with power in Christ. Okay, through his substitutionary death on the cross, through the good news of his life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinners for the forgiveness of sins, God has already moved with power to bring about deliverance in the next life. And therefore, regardless, regardless of the circumstances temporally, regardless of the temporal outcome, brothers and sisters, we will ultimately and eventually be delivered. We will. 
We will experience deliverance. We will experience victory. And therefore, what matters most is not, is not the outcome to a particular circumstance, but gospel faith in the midst of any circumstance, regardless of the outcome. And when that kind of gospel faith is really alive and well and functioning in our hearts, it frees us to be bold and it frees us to endure. And I think perhaps of greater concern for the writer of Hebrews was a faith that was willing to endure. Because in chapter 12, he will say to them, up to this point in following Christ, you have not yet had to shed your own blood. Implication being, but there may come a point in time where you will. Circumstances may turn in such a way that verses 36 through 38 describe your experience more than verses 32 through 35 describe your experience. And so through these examples, he reminds them of those who have not only had bold faith, but who have had enduring faith. I mean, Elijah was spared Jezebel's sword, but James was put to death by Herod's sword. Right? Stephen was stoned. Okay, tradition has it that it was Isaiah who was sawn in two. Jeremiah was beaten and put into prison. Okay, we, we have a description of people who not only had bold faith, they, they, they had enduring faith, and they had enduring faith because the cost of their faith was, was suffering. It was mistreatment. It was difficulty. It was danger. It was affliction. It was tragedy. And, and th- those are the kinds of things that I think these Hebrew Christians really could, could more relate to than the victory and deliverance side of things. But what enabled them to not only be bold in their faith, the examples of those in, in this passage, it would enable them to not only be bold in their faith, but to endure in their faith, I think is really summed up at the end of verse 35, that this conviction that they would ultimately rise to a better life. Right, that, 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 that's the ultimate hope. In fact, most scholars believe that some of these examples and illustrations that are given in these verses uh, also allude to the intertestamental period in Israel's history, um, particularly the stories of the faithful among God's people during the reign of the notoriously pagan and notoriously cruel Antiochus Epiphanes, which is recorded in the writings of Maccabees, where, where God's people declare things like this, you dismiss us from this present life, But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life. That's the conviction of verse 35. And Richard Phillips commenting on this whole section, he writes, This kind of fidelity, this kind of faithfulness, this kind of fidelity is incomprehensible to the man who does not know God. But to the eyes of faith, it is reckoned a fair bargain. However unpleasant the honor to suffer for God's sake. And the writer of Hebrews actually provides his own commentary on the matter when he says in verse 38 that the world was not worthy of these individuals. See, see, these men and women described in verses 35b through verse 38, see, the world thought they were unfit because of their faith. The world thought you're unfit for this world because of your faith in God, when in reality, the world, because of its unbelief, was unfit for them. And because they endured in faith, God delivered them to the world to come. And they won. And the world lost. So brothers and sisters, where is God calling you to a faith that endures? Where is God calling you to believe that if he does not deliver you from a particular thing, a particular situation, a particular circumstance in this life, that your deliverance in Christ is still enough? Where is he calling you to believe that? It's still enough. It's still enough for you to be bold, and it's still enough for you to endure. And it's enough quote 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8 that these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for you. Where is God calling you to really, really believe that? So that come what may, okay, whatever comes, 
Yours is a faith that endures. Brothers and sisters, I, I actually, as I have reflected on this passage, and I, and, I, and I remember when I was originally preparing this, and we were going through Hebrews and, and doing an entire series back in Charlotte, um, I, I, I do believe that, that the need for this is actually going to increase here in our own country, okay, where we have experienced religious freedoms for so long. Okay, the, the, the need to have a faith, a gospel faith that is willing to endure is actually going to increase. It's going to be harder. Um, this past October, uh, there was a story shared at the pastor's conference. It was a story that was shared by uh, Christian Weigert, who is the pastor of RK Church in Hamburg, Germany. It's a very influential church. It, it partners with a number of other churches uh, in, in, in Europe, has a relationship with a number of other churches in, in Europe. Uh, and he told the story of a church that they have a relationship with in, in the Ukraine. And I'm sure a lot of you are probably aware of the, the political and uh, military unrest that's happening in that part of the world. And he told the story how on a recent Sunday morning that their church service was raided and two of the deacons and two of the pastor's sons were taken. The next day, all four were shot and killed, leaving behind all of their wives and 11 children. Just a little bit closer to home... Uh, when I was, again, originally preparing this message to preach, uh, one of the major news stories in the headlines at the time was a situation happening in, Euro- in, uh, in Houston. Uh, if you remember this, where a number of pastors were actually subpoenaed by the mayor's office to turn over their sermons because they had faithfully preached the word of God in regards to biblical ethics regarding sexuality, things that challenged the mayor's ethics on sexuality. And, and, and I know since then all of those subpoenas have been, have been withdrawn and you know, that that's, has sort of all died down. But I do remember thinking, and I have actually thought this personally for some time, that it would not surprise me that a day is coming when I could receive a, a similar subpoena just for faithfully preaching the word of God. In fact, I, I would not be at all surprised that at some point in my lifetime, that I could actually be arrested for hate speech for faithfully preaching God's word. And I, I don't say that to be dramatic. The point here is not to be dramatic. I'm simply saying it to make the point that I have sense for some time. It will be increasingly difficult to be faithful in this country. And to be faithful will, in fact, require a faith that is willing to endure. It's going to. In, in, in recent days, I've actually found myself at sort of a crossroads in my own heart and in my own soul. And so I hear words and stories shared about revival and, and reaping a harvest and, in my community and, 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 and in my church. And it gets me very excited and I pray for those things and I, and, I, and I preach on those things. And then I hear about faithful believers in other countries getting dragged out of their churches and shot and pastors in my own country being subpoenaed for preaching the word of God. And I sort of ask myself and I ask the Lord, okay, Lord, you know, which is it, you know, is it, is it, is it revival or is it persecution? You know, which is it? What, what's, what's, what's happening? And if you sort of want my own prophetic sense of the matter, my answer is, is perhaps both. Perhaps both. That's normally the way it actually works. Church history has told us. But the days ahead, brothers and sisters, I believe the days ahead for the church of God will require a faith that is bold. I mean, bold, crazy bold. And a faith that endures. A faith that is willing to suffer. A faith that is willing to endure for Christ. A faith that is both bold and a faith that endures. Lastly, let's look at verses 39 and 40 very quickly. Two things that every person and every example mentioned in this chapter have in common. One, they were all commended for their faith. Two, none of them were told in this life received what was promised. Verse 39. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the key to interpreting verse 39 is actually verse 40, that God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I think the key to interpreting verse 40 then is that word better. It's actually a word that is repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. When we did our series back in Charlotte, that's actually what we called the entire series was, was, was better. Um, it's a key word throughout the whole letter and virtually every single time it is used, it is referring to the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ in whom all of God's promises have ultimately been fulfilled. And so Jesus is the better word. He's the better message. He's the better mediator. He's the better, he's the better rest. He's the better Sabbath. He's the better covenant. He's the better priest. He's the better blood. He's the better sacrifice. Jesus, Jesus is better in all of these ways we're told throughout the book of Hebrews. And the point of it all, I believe, 
is that if these men and women of faith in chapter 11 believe without seeing Christ, without having Christ, without having, having the knowledge of, of Christ as we do, but only, only seeing and having promises and shadows and types and images that were to come and not the fulfillment themselves, how much more faith, brothers and sisters, ought we to have who don't just have shadows and types and images and longings, but actually have the knowledge of the fulfillment of all of those things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, we have that which is, is better And therefore, let me just offer some final conclusions to finish. Number one, again, it is not the outcome of our circumstances that matter most, but rather faith in the midst of any circumstance, regardless of the outcome. Two, because we have what is better in the knowledge of Jesus, the kind of faith we're being called to here is gospel faith. Gospel faith is convinced that God is able to move with power and deliver us in this life. But if he does not, gospel faith is convinced that God has already moved with power in Christ to deliver us in the next life, which is the better life. Three, when this kind of faith is functioning in us, when it is alive, when it is breathing, when it is beating, it frees us to be bold for Christ And it frees us to endure for Christ. We are secure in the life to come, brothers and sisters. Therefore, we don't don't worry about this life the way we used to worry about this life. Our hopes are not tied up in this life. Our definition of success and victory and meaning is not ultimately tied up in this life. So we don't worry about this life in the same way. And therefore, we're able to be bold in this life. We're We're able to be risky in this life for God. Okay, we're able to endure in this life because we know that this life isn't all that there is. And so we're bold and we endure. We know where the ultimate victory is. We know where the ultimate deliverance is, do we not? Okay, lastly, may we hear the call of the word of God and may we arise in faith. Okay, let's, let's, let's get out of these seats. Let's go out there into the world and let's live lives of gospel faith So that our names and our examples are added to this list of witnesses for the generations to come. So that when our children consider us, they would say, yeah, I know my parents. Yeah, they were were crazy with their faith. They were bold. They endured. They were obedient. They were risky. They suffered. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They trusted God all the way to the end. I saw God do crazy things with my parents. I saw some of my parents' hopes and longings deferred and unfulfilled, and yet they kept trusting. Let's go live lives of gospel faith for their sake so that our names, our stories, our examples are added to this great cloud of witnesses that's about to be introduced to us in chapter 12, verse 1. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I pray for your people this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you would convince us of these things that you are, in fact, able to deliver us in this life. Lord, you are able to move, and, and you will. Lord, there are things that you will do in this life for us that are truly awesome and miraculous and good, and we thank you now. Lord, there are things you have done that speak to that, and we love you for it. And Lord, we also pray, and I also ask, that we would have a faith that believes that the, that the deliverance we have in Jesus Lord, it is better than any deliverance we'll ever experience in this life. And Lord, I pray that the knowledge of that would free us to be bold in our faith, to endure in our faith. Lord, to love you, to serve you, to trust you, to obey you, to follow you for your glory, for our good, for the sake of the world, for the sake of our children. We pray these things and we ask all of these things. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope of eternal life. I pray that all of the things that you have told us and promised to us in your word would be real and alive to us in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, and that it would change us and that we would live by them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.